this morning is taken from Mark's Gospel, um, page 1003 in the Pew Bibles, and it should also be up on the screen. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, starting at verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Thank you, Charles, for reading that to us. Let's pray with the word of God open before us. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the gift of this word. We thank you for all the light it sheds on your living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that uh, your determination to make yourself known through him to us would bear fruit in our lives tonight, today. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. i tell you a story about a, a junior clergyman who had preached at Trinity College Dublin, and he made the mistake of asking for feedback on his sermon to one of the senior clerics there, and he was very flattered to be told that the sermon had brought to mind the peace and mercy of God. He was pretty chuffed by that, Um, but unwisely he then asked how that comparison had arisen in the uh, senior cleric's mind, and the senior cleric went on, oh, the truth of the comparison was forced on me, Your sermon was like the peace of God because it passed all understanding and like his mercy because it showed every sign of enduring forever. (laughs) And there are plenty of jokes like that which suggest um, that preaching is no longer in vogue today. I remember when I was at theological college, this was a discouragement that I had to endure there. There was a secular... Uh, market flooded at the time with little cartoon booklets. They were like a sort of stocking filler entitled 101 Things to Do with a Dead Cat. Do you remember them if you were around at the time? And the Christian market at the same time was buying a similar book, 101 Things to Do During a Dull Sermon. So I'm looking for any evidence that people have read that as we carry on. Anyway, I guess it's never a question that's far from our mind, uh, particularly on a Sunday. What am I doing sitting quietly listening to somebody else speaking for 20 or 25 minutes? 
Because if you think about it, church is just about the only place in our society where anything like that happens. And especially that might be the case when we're aware of situations of extreme suffering in our world. Forget sermons, we're tempted to think. Surely what's needed is action, not talk. But when you turn to the pages of the New Testament, a low view of preaching is entirely missing. It's often said, God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. And in our reading in Mark's Gospel today, we see this priority of Jesus' ministry reflected. Actually, it was clear last week, remember, when Jesus went to Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach the people in the synagogue. It's clear again in the final verse um, of our reading today, verse 39. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. But here's the surprise. Even in Jesus' day, with the finest sermons the world has ever heard, I take it, there was pressure on him to cut back on preaching. Um, Jesus' world was no stranger to suffering uh, like our own world, like our own situation. And the sheer weight of suffering easily could have squeezed his preaching because Jesus clearly had power to address the human suffering he faced. He could meet people's physical needs and somehow it must have been like this. The spiritual needs all around him might have seemed less pressing. Preaching seems pretty intangible. And yet, here, Jesus asserts that priority. I'm grateful that Mark portrays it as a battle. There's nothing glib here. It's not as if Jesus was saying, oh, forget about human suffering. I'm only going to deal with human sin. He was a healer. That's where a passage begins. So there's definite focus on uh, that attention to human suffering. I've got two points today, therefore. Jesus' power to heal... That's where our passage starts. And then Jesus' priority to preach, as it's reflected here in the second bit of the passage. Now, the power to heal is obvious in verses 29 to 33. Uh, it had already happened in that 24-hour period because that day in the synagogue, Jesus put one deeply disturbed individual back together again, the guy who was possessed by uh, a demon. And what the crowds had seen earlier on in the synagogue now gets witnessed behind closed doors in the privacy of Peter's house with just close associates and extended family looking on. Verse 29, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That is a remarkable demonstration of Jesus' power to heal in the instantaneous cure of her sickness. He went to her, took her hand, and helped her. The fever left her. Boom. One moment she's in bed, the next she's on her feet, serving. No convalescence apparently needed. Maybe somebody here is worried that they are weak and that they'll never really be able to serve Christ effectively or they look back on a past where they could and they feel less capable of doing so now. 
think, oh, there's no point really trying. But this little snapshot of Jesus in action tells us otherwise. He's very gentle. Takes her by the hand. He helps her. And he's very powerful. So she gains more strength from him in a moment than we normally do from a week's rest and relaxation. The instant power to heal. And it's the same power that he can use to transform our lives, even our weak lives. Remember that scene too, if you're ever tempted to wonder, how has Jesus got time for an individual? With a world in need, we think, oh, how can he be bothered with little old me? Well, he is, he cares for the one, Simon Peter's mother-in-law, in this case. So here he is in private, then immediately after that, he's with the crowds again. Let me read verse 32 onwards. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove up many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So it's very impressive. Once sunset comes, and the Sabbath is over, therefore, people legally could carry their sick friends onto the street, and out they all come. One by one by one, Jesus heals them all. What's so striking in the gospel accounts, if you put the other healing miracles alongside this, is the uh, magnitude of the healing miracles that are described. All sorts of conditions are dealt with very powerfully and quickly. Withered hands restored, eyes that had never worked starting to work, all sorts of other conditions. And what that means as you read the different accounts is that skin cells, muscles, nerves, retinal cells and the like were brought into existence where they hadn't been created and then made to work as well. In other words, the brain cells controlling them and responding to them were somehow reorganized to function properly again. They are remarkable instances of the power of the Lord Jesus to heal. Not just on the level of the faith healer who by suggestion manages to ease somebody's backache. These are creative, dynamic, powerful events. In addition to the healing, there are also exorcisms. Although, notice how matter of fact the description is there as well. I think I mentioned last week in modern horror movies, um, not that I'm a particular sampler of them, but things like The Exorcist, you always get the sort of the, the holy figure, the priest splashing holy water everywhere and there are long chanted prayers and he holds up a, a Bible defiantly or weighs a cross and it takes ages and ages and ages and then the force of evil is only just beaten, you get that impression. Here, such is Jesus' power to heal, it, it couldn't really be more straightforward. Just one sentence in our account here. And it's over. He also drove out many demons. And no contest. Doesn't even let the demons speak. I know it's very tempting to dismiss talk of evil spirits as a load of pre-scientific nonsense. The sort of thing simple people believed before we discovered medical explanations for human sicknesses. Oh, we think they spiritualized everything. Perhaps the truth is not that the ancient world spiritualized everything, more that we today try to naturalize everything. So we explain the devil away, and we try to replace demon possession with medical or psychological categories. If we ask why there was such 
pronounced demonic activity then, why it's not so obvious today? The answer seems to lie in the fact that the visible presence of Jesus in the world brought right into the open a conflict that normally goes on quietly under the surface. There's a little ditty which goes like this. The devil was fairly voted out. And of course, the devil's gone. But simple folk would like to know, who carries his business on? We sort of think of ourselves as enlightened, don't we? We've voted the devil out. But actually, in our more honest moments, it doesn't take much to see that he is active today, even if often undercover. Maybe you've got a slightly different question. You're asking, well, why did Jesus refuse to let the, devils, the demons speak? Could it be this? Is it because he doesn't want the devil as his spin doctor? Satan cannot be allowed to manage Jesus' publicity campaign. At the point, and as you go through Mark's Gospel, people are gradually learning. Jesus is teaching people gradually what kind of Messiah he is. Well, what better way for the devil to muck that process up than by letting the truth out on the lips of profoundly disturbed people and doing so before the disciples and everybody else have got all the sort of data in place in their heads to understand it properly, what kind of Messiah he is. But again, there's no mistaking Jesus' power to heal. Okay, so time to sum up under this first heading. Right back at the dawn of human history, when mankind rebelled against God, the result was that creation itself was put out of joint. Natural disasters, for example, uh, bear witness to that. Human life was blighted as well. Death entered human experience. And part and parcel of our mortality was sickness. Add on to that an extra layer. In our rebellion, we willingly open the door to the devil and to his destructive power. And so when Jesus came into our world, what he was doing was to put the processes of suffering and evil into reverse. He had the authority to stop them in their tracks. Actually, one day they're going to be removed from the world forever. But to be ready for that day now, we need to bow to Jesus' power and authority ourselves today to say, yes, Lord, you be my king. Now, of course, there's a cost to that. But we will find as we do so that he puts our lives back together again as nobody else can. So that is the full scale of Jesus' power to heal witnessed here in these first few verses. The second thing I mentioned here is Jesus' priority to preach. That's in the second bit of the passage. Really, verses 35 to 39 cover it. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, Everybody's looking for you. Jesus replied, Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Now, I suppose we could be clever, clever, and say that Jesus' priority was not to preach, but to pray, because verse 35 stresses that at daybreak, 
Jesus went out to a solitary place where he prayed. But I think the more obvious priority that these verses as a whole draw attention to is the priority of his preaching over his healing. And obviously it's not an exclusive priority. Jesus goes on healing throughout his ministry. In fact, it probably doesn't help too much to put them into or to imply that they're in two separate watertight categories. The healing miracles and the exorcisms were both visual demonstrations of his message, his preaching. Unfortunately, the healing miracles and so on are the part that everybody wants. And it's quite clear that however many people he heals, the demand is still going to be there. So in this case, Jesus moves on. And the suggestion seems to be, doesn't it, that he's going to leave some people unhealed whom he could have healed because preaching is the priority for him. Now, I don't say that lightly. There is no sense at all that Jesus didn't feel the physical ills that people had. He did. We're going to see next week in the very next episode in Mark's Gospel just how keenly he felt them. He was really churned up by human suffering. Susan and I have just watched um, the miniseries Band of Brothers for, well, I've lost count of how many times we've seen it. I think five or six times. And you need to know that it's sort of ten hour-long episodes. It's quite an achievement to do that. This is the true story of the U.S. 106th Airborne's involvement in the closing stages of World War II. One episode follows the paratroopers of Easy Company as they discover the concentration camp Landsberg at the end of the Second World War. And there's a moment where the American soldier Gottlieb, who acts as a translator, has to tell the Jews in the camp that even though he has food for them, they can sort of see that uh, their first decent meal for ages is right there in front of their eyes. Even though that's the case, he's got to take their food away again. Why? Well, because they are so malnourished that to eat well would actually harm them terribly. What they don't know as this episode unfolds is that Gottlieb, who has to make that announcement, is himself a Jew. You can imagine how churned up he was. He had the power to meet their physical needs, but actually he knew it was more important in this instance not to. But that was not, on his part, evidence of a lack of compassion. It would actually have been cruel to meet their immediate physical needs. And I have no doubt that Jesus felt keenly the pain of putting physical healing on hold. That's why, presumably, he had to get away to pray, to seek God's strength, to put spiritual need even higher than physical need. In his case, it would be possible to heal people's physical ills without dealing with their spiritual ills. But preaching, he knows, reaches the parts that his miracles on their own can never reach. And that could be the same today. You could think of instances where sadly somebody dies of illness, but they die as a Christian. And however much they suffer in life, they're forgiven, and they're going to be raised with perfect health. Conversely, in the Western world, people have better physical health as a rule, but many die without their spiritual needs being met. And that's a far worse situation to be in. Uh, 25 years ago, before moving to Cambridge, I used to work with children from the top private schools in the country. And often people, when they discovered that about me, couldn't really understand, why would anybody do that? 
because they didn't look needy at all. But in Jesus' eyes, they were spiritually starved or spiritually diseased as much as anybody. And Jesus is reflecting that sort of spiritual priority here. Well, let's step back from the storyline for a moment. If that priority is right, then it seems to me there are any number of applications that that might suggest to us. To begin with, doesn't it suggest that Christian giving ought to be directed first and foremost towards the spread of the gospel? Now, I don't say exclusively. Obviously, Jesus was moved with compassion wherever he encountered human suffering. And yet, Christian relief agencies don't find it hard to motivate Christians to give towards relief projects. But when mission agencies are committed exclusively to staffing gospel witness, they always seem to struggle to raise the money needed for their work. And that's why I say our giving ought to reflect the priority of preaching. We've got a gift day coming up. The focus of our November gift day is for the year-round raising of money via our year-round giving, actually. It gives us a chance to just reassess month by month our giving. But the the focus isn't on sort of one-off special projects so much as that that year-round commitment to see that we are staffing the church um, at every level for the word of God to be preached to young, to old, to congregations, to groups, and so on. So I want to just encourage you to reflect that priority of Jesus's as we see it here, as you ponder your response to the gift day. Another application, I mean, this might be a prior one, actually, to that second, uh, that first one I've mentioned. This might be a prior one. Doesn't this priority mean that we must give attention to receiving Jesus's message? If preaching sermons was Jesus' priority, then placing ourselves under such preaching must be ours. That'll affect how we listen to sermons in church, how we uh, follow the the Bible teaching in different other meetings. Uh, If and when we move on from All Saints, say you head off to college or university in the future, some people here that might be an application for, or we're trying to pray for people that we know in our families that will be moving on in life to a different church. The basis on which we choose a church, or they choose a church, must reflect this primary importance of preaching. There's one, I think, that is a logical one out of this passage particularly, rising very naturally from it, is this. It's an encouragement towards geographical outreach, if I can put it like that. Isn't that the lesson of verse 38? Jesus replied, let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. The reason he didn't stay still, healing every case of illness brought before him, is because there was a geographical imperative which drove him on and out to other places. And I can't help thinking that's a reminder that we need regularly in our church life. It's over 15 years since uh, 25 members of All Saints left to form a new church in Sawston. Um, I spent quite a bit of time with Tim Chapman recently. I've preached there as well. I think that under God, that 
little move then has indeed advanced the cause of the gospel locally. But it was 15 years ago. Uh, and it's fair to keep asking ourselves the question, what now? Obviously, church planting isn't the only strategy for gospel outreach. I rejoice that uh, Neil Wade is in other villages, strengthening the work of the gospel there by his leading and preaching. And there are other ways we could do that. The question is, do we have geographical outreach on our hearts? And specifically, in line with the uh, spirit of these verses, geographical outreach under the preaching of the word of God. Just want to throw out a question. Should we be praying towards a way to partner with others in doing that somewhere new if we can't fully resource a plant ourselves? And I've put geographical locations down in my notes I don't want to drive you nuts by mentioning it, but I always think about Hawkston, I think about Newmarket, I think about Saffron Walden. Are we at least asking, how might Jesus' message be better passed on in places like that? I was reminded as I was preparing this about the amazing achievements of Cecil Rhodes at the end of the 19th century. You hear him often in a, a negative light, statues in Oxford being pulled down and so on. He was a remarkable guy. He made a million by the age of 24. By the time he died, he claimed British colonies in South Africa, Zambia and Zimbabwe. And he had bigger aspirations, actually. He actually longed for the day when the United States came back under British rule. He died mumbling, so little done, so much to do. Now, I am not for one moment wanting to commend his longing to claim the world for the British Empire. The legacy, even in his lifetime, is one of great suffering. But I do think we can learn from his purposefulness. He wasn't content to sit back and do nothing. Jesus Christ, of course, was even more purposeful, but without the taint of dodgy motivation that drove a Cecil Rhodes along. Jesus was impelled by this priority of preaching to move on. So even in a world racked with suffering, as our world is today, preaching has a vital place. And we mustn't buy into that lie that preaching has had its day. Talk like that when we hear it should actually stir us up to receive Jesus' message, if we've never done so, to go on listening to him and then to take that message to those who will listen wherever we have to go to find them. Well, let's pray together to that end. That is why I have come. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to yield uh, your life, your thinking, your speaking, uh, every aspect of your existence towards the, the purposes that your Father in Heaven had for you. We thank you for being willing to be born for us, for your willingness to preach and encounter opposition as you did so, for your willingness to die on the, sin, on the cross for our sins. We rejoice that you were willing to follow your Father's purpose in life and in death for our sake. And we pray that your kingdom would come more fully in our lives and your will be done more fully by us 
and indeed by our church, to the honor and glory of your name. Amen.